Again, it's great to see all of you today. I'm so glad that you're here. And we're going to start within the series of things you'll never regret. We're going to start a short series on the book of, uh, of Job. About five sermons, I suspect. And uh, one of the things you probably know about the book of Job is that um, it pretty much saves the punchline for the end. You know, it's like 41 chapters, it's a long book, and in verse chapters 38 to 42, God speaks into the midst of the confusion and the uncertainty and the despair and the misinformation that has been shared for about two dozen chapters between Job and his friends. So it sort of saves the punchline for the end. But there's a reason for that, and the reason for that is that unless we travel with Job and his friends from the beginning, we're really not prepared for the end um, to understand its significance and, uh, and its power. Well, with that in mind, the sermon today actually sort of saves the punchline for the end, and so I want to encourage you to be really listening carefully through the course of the entire sermon. Don't fade in and out on me. Don't do that. I'm going to read the first chapter of Job and, uh, and then talk about the second chapter of Job and come and read the end of Job, the second chapter, with you. So anyway, just follow along with me the first chapter. These first two chapters, the opening section of the book of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 1,500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest man of all the people of the East." His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered, the Lord, and he said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down upon it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing, for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face." And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him, in other words, him personally, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence 
of the Lord. Now it's from that point that we begin to be told in the last part of the, of the first chapter that four servants come to Job in succession so rapidly that they're overlapping one another. The first servant comes and he announces to Job that the Sabaeans have attacked, and that would be an attack from the south, and destroyed all of Job's plowing oxen, all of his donkeys, all of his farm workers. That's in verse 15. And then he isn't even done talking about this disaster from the south. And another servant shows up and talks about how fire has fallen from heaven overhead and burned up all of Job's sheep and all of his shepherds in verse 16. And not only, not, uh, he's not even done talking about what's come from overhead. And another, another servant shows up and says the Chaldeans have attacked. That had been an attack from the north. And they'd attacked in three waves and destroyed all of Job's camels and all of his his servants and then a fourth a fourth servant shows up and he talks about a terrible wind that has come it would have been a wind from the east and killed all ten of Job's children knocked the, the, the pillars out from the house where they were eating as they sat together Imagine that, you know, this is this, this sort of simultaneously, seemingly timed attack from the south, from the north, from the sky above, from the, from the east. And Job responds to that in verse 22, verse 20 rather, of chapter 1. He says, the text says, then Job rose and tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Let's stop there for now. Let's pray together. Father, I would ask you now to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, speak to each one of us not to trust in ourselves uh, in life or in death, but in you who raised the dead. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Well, there is that question that God asked Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? And that's exactly what we're going to do today together. We are going to consider God's servant Job. As part of the series, the broader series of things you'll never regret. And what I'm saying to you today about that is you will never regret, you will never regret considering the Lord's servant Job. You'll never regret it. This is a book we tend to stay away from. It's 41 chapters. It's long. It talks a lot about suffering, the suffering of the righteous, raises a lot of difficult questions. We tend not to wade into this book, but sooner or later, you will need this book. And that's why you'll never regret being familiar with it. In the New Testament, Jesus' brother James points to Job as the preeminent example of patience in the midst of suffering in the Old Testament and that it's there for us. James would write, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's a very powerful lesson to take to heart and it's in the book of Job. 
We need Job. We need this book. It's a book of wisdom. It's longer than the book of Proverbs. It's the longest book of wisdom in the entire Bible. And yet, unlike Proverbs that addresses so many themes, this longer book addresses just really one theme, a human suffering that defies all of our pat answers of explanation, that many of us in living pretend will not happen or should or could not happen to us in our own lives. And I just want to say that if we live in denial, that we could suffer miserably at the hands of evil, or that we would be called upon to comfort friends who are suffering miserably at the hands of evil. If we live that way, you're likely mistaken. And when it happens, you certainly won't be prepared. Toward the end of the book, God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind, from a whirlwind. He begins in his conversation with Job by saying this in chapter 38. Who is this? He's talking to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job was written so we would not darken counsel by words without knowledge when it comes to this kind of suffering. Either when we speak to ourselves and we're in the midst of it, or whether we're seeking to comfort others as Job's friends were trying to do. This book addresses the tormenting question that we naturally raise, that naturally arises when God, who's just and merciful and all-powerful, permits a person Like Job, who's blameless and upright, one who fears God and turns away from evil to suffer catastrophic loss of his possessions, his children, his health, until he's been reduced and left a most miserable human being. And the question, of course, is how does that happen? The question is, which is it? Does this human experience mean that no matter what we have thought, no matter what we have believed, no matter what we've observed, does it mean that Job in truth really is unrighteous? Or that God, forgive me, is unrighteous? In Job, God's power is never at issue. You know, the whole, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, God is in that power. No, that is not an assumption. God is God. He is all-powerful. That is never, never raised as a question in the book of Job. The question that's raised in this horizontal level is whose character is flawed that such a thing should have happened? Is it Job's character or is it God's character? And most of Job is a debate. It's a record of the debate between Job and his friends over just this point. And it becomes sharper and sharper. It moves from a debate into a sharp and painful conflict. And it's only God's theophany, his manifestation of himself, personally to Job, that puts an end, an end to what had actually been pooled ignorance. Now we're going to look at that debate between Job and his friends next week. But now, I've said a number of things you're more or less familiar with in terms of the book of Job, but now let's step back for a moment and think about the focus this week. There is another question 
that's raised in the early part of Job. And another question, by the way, at the end of Job, which we'll get to. But there is another question and another conflict that arises in Job prior to the conflict between Job and his friends that I just described. And it is the focus this morning from chapters one and two. And it's a conflict that is not born of human ignorance. It it is a substantial question. It deals with what is real, not what human beings perceive it to be. Here's the way it's set up. Satan comes before God. God asks Satan, where has he come from? Satan says, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down upon it. And, and Peter, centuries later, correctly interprets the meaning of this when he speaks about it or alludes to it in 1 Peter 5. This description of walking to and fro upon the earth and up and down upon it, this is a description of a bloodthirsty lion who's roaming his territory, who's seeking a kill, who lives to devour the righteous. And God says to him, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. This is the way God described Job. I'll say a better and stronger translation of that, though, is, in a more literal translation, is not, have you considered my servant Job, but have you set your mind on Job? And understand, this is a rhetorical question. Of course Satan had. Job was Satan's most wanted. He was the biggest prize. Job was the one who walked around the earth with a big bullseye on himself. He knew that. But God had not permitted Satan to hurt Job, to harm Job. To this point, Job had been off limits. And what's more, God had blessed him greatly. And so Satan responds with his own rhetorical question. Have you, have you set your mind on Job? Which of course he had. Now Satan responds with what he thinks is his own rhetorical question. Does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for no reason? In other words, does, he, does Job fear God and get nothing out of it? He goes on, he says, have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But if you stretch out your hand and you touch all that he has, he will curse you to his face. You understand the point Satan's making. Job does not fear God for nothing. The rhetorical question, the answer to the rhetorical question is no. He doesn't fear God for no reason. He's getting so much out of it. He gets a lot out of it. He fears God because he gets something out of it. He gives God his worship in return for protection and favor. What Satan is really insinuating is (coughs) that Job's worship is not authentic. Job's worship is a sham He is as self-centered as the pagan, as the atheist. He's just come up with a scheme and believes that if he pays his dues, he gets to hold on to what he has and he's going to get more beside. And as for God, the insinuation is 
which is not answered till the end of the book, but the insinuation is that God demands that he be worshiped as just and gracious. But you see, cynically, what's really happening is that he's not God. He's a Godfather. He's running a protection racket. He's extorting worship. If you don't worship me, your life won't go well. That is Satan's argument. That is, that is the nature of evil and its response to faith. That is the heart of Satan's argument at this point. So is this really who Job is? Who is Job? We'll hear about God later. Is this really who Job is? Who is Job? So God permits, and that's a key word, permits. You know, you have to get a permit to drive. You've got to get a permit to do this, a permit to do that. God is all sovereign. Satan cannot do uh, willy-nilly what he wants to do unless God permits it. And I really mean that in a strong sense of the word. God permits it. So he permits Satan to do whatever he wants to do. Except he can't hurt Job physically. He can't hurt his, his person. And so this fourfold catastrophe falls on Job. As I said, the news of, of each catastrophe reaching Job, overlapping, wave after wave, uh, as, as a farmer, his oxen and his donkeys, as a rancher, his sheep and their shepherds, as a trader, all those camels for those caravans, they're all wiped out. His entire livelihood is wiped out. And then his family, his children, all 10 of his children die. And Job is left undone. I mean, he's torn apart. And so he symbolically tears his robe. He shaves his head. He falls on the ground. And yet he worships. He says, naked from my mother's womb I came. Naked I shall return to the earth. In the Bible, the womb and the earth are are, uh, conceptually in terms of symbol. They're seen as symbols. Remember Psalm 139, you knit me together, my mother's womb. And, uh, and, and And then he goes on to compare that with being formed in the earth like Adam was. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, Satan has viciously attacked, really, God's character, as well as Job's, our focus now. He's insinuated, he's insinuated that he's simply out for himself, after his own security, after his own prosperity. And yet, Job responds this way. Why? Why did Job continually continue to worship the Lord? Was it, was it then, it was heartfelt submission. It was, it, was, it was love, the heartfelt love, the heartfelt uh, trust. Obviously, that's what it is. Not so fast, Satan says. Not so fast. Not necessarily. And I will tell you in your own life, spiritually, The work of Satan is always to second guess every good thing. To raise doubt. 
And so Satan comes before God again, chapter two. And the language of chapter two in this encounter is almost identical to the language of chapter one, except, except, God says this, when he reintroduces Job in exactly the same way, you know, blameless, not evil, etc. But he adds this, God says he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him, to destroy him without reason. And Satan responds, not so fast, skin for skin. Seven and eight. All that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. Skin for skin. What does that mean? It means that Job in continuing to worship, was only trying to save his own skin. And he really didn't care about the skin of all those that had been sacrificed. He didn't really care about the lives of all those who'd been killed. At least he had his life, and he thought if he continued to worship God and be true to God, at least he'd save his own life. And that had always been what was most important to him. And so you see, you see, And Job continuing to worship God, he wasn't proving to be selfless. He was showing just how selfish he really was. He didn't care what had happened to the rest. Skin for skin, I'll gladly let you be sacrificed as long as I get to walk clean. Okay, God. It's horrible, isn't it? It's evil. It's the nature of evil. Well, Satan would say that, you know, Job does not worship God because he's warm-hearted toward God. It's because he's cold-hearted toward everyone else. Skin for skin. So now God permits Job to be afflicted. He permits Satan to afflict Job, but not to kill him. And so what happens is that, that Satan strikes Job with a horrible, horrible infection. His body is covered with burning, itching, stinging abscesses, swollen, redden, painful boils or blisters that erupt into more and more misery for Job. Scab over. You mean all the pain of of a scab on a boil? He is so miserable. He is so tormented that he scrapes his sores with a jagged, broken piece of pottery in order to get relief. Couldn't get much worse. No place he could sit, stand, let nothing, no relief, 24-7, from his head to his toe. And yet, when his wife comes to him and says to him, listen carefully, do you still hold on to your integrity? Curse God and lie and curse God and die, Job 
holds fast. He says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all this, chapter two, verse 10 says, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, it raises the question, doesn't it? And the question it raises is how would you do? How would you do? On March 9th, in 2005, I stood with one of our members and we wept together about this even two weeks ago, three weeks ago, as we recalled it. I stood with Ryan McKay in a waiting room at Johns Hopkins University Hospital in Baltimore as he brought news that his wife, Margaret, had just died. A normal strep infection had spread to her lungs and in very short order destroyed her life. And I don't put this in my notes that get published, but uh, Ryan was in the waiting room and I got in the hospital and, and I got into the into the room with Margaret um, just as or within 30 seconds of, of her expiring. But then I went out and, uh, and I was with Ryan in that waiting room and I saw this man raise his eyes toward heaven and pray loudly through his tears and pledge himself, I will not blame you for this God, I will not hate you for this, The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I will never forget that. And when he came up to me just two or three weeks ago, because he's going to be gone for much of the summer, and he knows I'm retiring in the end of August, and he might not see me again, he said, I'll never forget when you did that, or you know, when you were with me and you were with Margaret at that moment. And, I, and he's crying. I broke into tears because I've been thinking that week about the same thing, but the other side. Ryan, I will never forget watching you testify and how you walk that out. And over the coming months after Margaret's death, he filled one of those tear bottles you can get with his tears as he grieved her loss. This... This was Job's response to Satan's question. His original question. Does Job fear God for no reason? His answers are, and they're really identical, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. And then, shall we receive good from the Lord and not receive evil? What was the point for Job? What was the point for Job? And the point for Job was exactly this punchline. He was not a spiritual mercenary. He wasn't going to serve whatever king paid him the most or gave him the most to worship. He was not a believer for hire. He did not give God his trust and worship as insurance against flood damage, against hail, against rain, or against any other evil. Job's response was for him a matter of integrity. 
integrity. He refused to become that man whose worship was conditioned on God doing him good. He didn't accept Jesus for the fire insurance. And when evil came upon him, as far as Job was concerned, God was not on trial. He was on trial. Such was Job's integrity. When he's described as a blameless man, when he's described as such a good man, you see this in the way he responded. This wasn't about what kind of God he worshiped. This was about what kind of man he was. That is how Job responded as he did. I want to say to you this morning that we do not have to wait until we get to the end of Job to find great wisdom and to take it to heart. And although I'll agree, certainly the the wisdom at the conclusion of Job is greater um, because it has to do with God himself and his theophany, his manifestation, than the wisdom at the front of Job. I would say to you this, that if we don't come through the veil of what Job experienced, we won't really appreciate the wisdom at the end. How we respond to evil that happens to us says something very profound about us. And our our response answers a question about us and our integrity before we ever get to questions about God and his integrity. Now, Job will raise questions about God. I mean, there's 25, 28 chapters of it in dialogue going back and forth. But understand the starting point. Understand he was a man of spiritual integrity. He was not a believer for hire. And as far as Job was concerned at that point, that was the issue. And I hope it will always be our first response, no matter how deeply challenged we feel. Proverbs 11 verse 3 says, whoever walks in his integrity walks securely. To catch a phrase from Family Bible Camp, it's true. Whoever walks in his integrity walks securely. Not because integrity will keep you from calamity. Not because integrity obligates God to insulate you from evil in this world but because the person who fears God has God for his friend and God is his redeemer. That's why. So we will patiently wait for God and his purposes to become clear. And that is part of our spiritual integrity. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and Lord, it's hard to wade into the book of Job. It's such a wonderful book, Um, but it really does show us the face of evil 
It, it really, really does. It's sort of screw tape letters before its time when we see how manipulative and how insinuating and how cynical and serpentine the devil really is. But I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ today and for myself as well that, uh, the, that in our foundation spiritually in our lives, as we pray, as we read, as we worship, Lord, that integrity of character and spirit would be uppermost for us. Um, that, that, we, that we would beware lest we live as believers for hire, as mercenaries available to the, to the God that gives us the greatest benefit. That has never been what faith is about. It's not what saving faith is about. And... I close just by saying in prayer to you, um, thank you for your love for us and your compassion and your mercies. Uh, oh, love of God, how strong and true, eternal yet and ever new. It's true. It's true. And we pray that you give us the patience of Job. In Jesus' name, amen.